This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Like so many millennials, I briefly studied martial arts as a child. My martial art of choice was kung fu, and I learned a particularly valuable lesson when attempting to progress to the next belt. We had to show knowledge of certain forms, the choreographed series of moves and stances. With each belt came new stances and therefore new forms. I remember testing to move on and failing because I couldn't remember the most basic form. My lack of practice and focus only on progressing rather than truly learning was my undoing. In this week's story, Teller Yongwu shares how his own much more long-lasting study of martial arts has given him perspective on growth and goals. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in October 2022, Second Story is proud to present Roundhouse Kick. Right foot planted, left foot crosses behind. Right foot rises, knee chambered to my chest, and thrust, plap. The sole of my tiny six-year-old foot bounces off the inch-thick yellow pine board with the most unsatisfying sound. I quietly growl in frustration and take another crack at it. Right foot, left foot, thrust, plap. At this point, I accept it. My heel's not gonna go through that board. Why even try? Then again, why not? I'm already here. I don't stress, I don't think about it, and then my foot is already on the other side of what is now two pieces of hard wood. Suddenly, I don't feel like the shortest kid in first grade anymore. I never actually was, but being one of the only Asians in the entire grade has a way of making me feel like that. I started my lifelong martial arts journey at the age of five-ish in Taekwondo, the most popular martial art in the world, and the reason why like 30% of Americans born after 1970 know how to count to 10 in Korean, even if they're super racist. It was, a it was a way for me to engage in Korean culture, slash give my parents an opportunity to hang out with some of the few dozen other Korean adults in all of Western Pennsylvania. Regardless of why I was signed up for it, I fell in love with Taekwondo. I was a small kid and generally assumed to be unathletic, but it turned out I was pretty good at punching and kicking. I enjoyed learning the techniques, the patterns, the sparring, all under the watchful eye of a very intense man called, I shit you not, Grandmaster Kong. That terrifying motherfucker taught me how to throw a spinning back kick faster than a boxer's jab. That's an exaggeration, but honestly not a big one, ask my friends. But there was always one insurmountable obstacle for me, throwing the roundhouse kick. The roundhouse is arguably the most fundamental kick in martial arts. It's essential and basic, and one of the first things you learn in any style that includes it. Despite this, and despite my beloved spinning back kick being considered a much more advanced technique, I always had immense difficulty with the humble roundhouse. Since my high school taekwondo days, I've gone on to study other styles, including capoeira, muay thai, choi li foot kung fu, tai chi, dutch kickboxing, just normal ass boxing, jiu-jitsu's both Brazilian and Japanese, a little wrestling here and there, and my current favorite, kyokushin karate at Imazaki Dojo in the South Loop. ADHD will continue to be a theme in the story. But none of my amazing instructors have been able to diagnose the exact problem with my roundhouse. Again, among the most basic of kicks, I'm just that unusually bad at it. But all of them are in agreement that one major factor is simply my flexibility. From a young age, I've always held a significant amount of tension in my lower back. 
It's affected my flexibility, my athletic ability, my posture, my buoyancy in water, even just the way that I walk. I just assumed I had a fucked up spine. So let me pause here and present to y'all a little breathing exercise. Right, do this with me. Take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. In through your nose and out through your mouth. In through your nose and say along with me out loud as you exhale, I am here. Out loud. In through your nose, I am fine. In through your nose, I am not heterosexual. <laughs> Did you feel some tension in your body? <laughs> Relax. Because if so, I have some fantastic news for you. So, a couple years ago, I discovered one of my new favorite television shows, a Japanese superhero show called Kamen Rider Zero One, streaming for free on Tubi. A recent series in the Kamen Rider franchise that dates back to 1971, Kamen Rider Zero One is basically Power Rangers, except flashier, more violent, significantly weirder, and a surprisingly cutting allegory about artificial intelligence, the militarization of technology, Japanese capitalism, labor rights, and to some extent, fatherhood. But what really matters here is that everybody in this show is beautiful. And everybody, whether they knew it or not, exudes powerful bisexual energy. In particular are a duo of characters who are part of the same mysterious paramilitary organization. A woman named Yaiba and a man named Fua. Yaiba uh, and Fua. I was in love with both of them, continue to be as a matter of fact. The woman is all business, but in a hot way. The man is just really grumpy, but in a hot way. They have amazing hair, excellent eyebrows, and they were Asian. And honestly, that's pretty much all it took to essentially turn me bisexual. Well, that is to say, realize that I'm bisexual. Let's jump back to high school. Those years were a mixed bag. I was somewhat popular and didn't deal with much saucy interpersonal drama, but I struggled with severe depression nevertheless. There were problems at home, and as you may have caught on, I have extremely pronounced ADHD that was then undiagnosed, but starting to interfere with my life in ways that my natural intelligence could no longer hide. But perhaps the most frustrating thing about my childhood was that by the time I graduated high school, I was one of 11 Asian Americans in my class of 344. There were three other people of color. That is to say, my graduating class was 99.96% white. Now, I might be off by one or two folks, but in general, it was not hard to scan my yearbook for these numbers. And let me just tell you this. The slur that I heard the most, that hurt me to the, the most, that to this day weighs heavy on my insecurities and layers of self-perception and loathing was simply Asian. Not chink, not gook, not Chinaman, although I heard those as well, just Asian. Now, there's nothing inherently racist about calling an Asian an Asian. It certainly beats Oriental, that's for sure. But that's my whole point. 
I grew up in an environment where one didn't have to put any extra hateful stank on a racially identifying term for it to be intended as an insult. To bullies, but more frequently to my own actual friends, merely being Asian was contemptible enough that just pointing out my Asianness was a sufficient insult. I drop a pass during gym class game of Ultimate Frisbee. It's because you're Asian, says some douchebag, probably named Jim. I do well on a biology test. It's because you're Asian, a playful, uh, an actual friend playfully jibes. Oh, what a fun joke. I enjoy martial arts. Oh, you're so Asian. If I do good, it's not because I'm smart or worked hard. It's because I'm Asian, and they resent me for it. If I fuck up, it's not because I made an honest mistake or I've been taught wrong. It's because I'm Asian, and they resent me for it. If I do something Asian, am something Asian, it's funny because Asianness is a punchline. On top of that are the innumerable times I heard things that devalued Asian men in particular. The global spread of Korean pop culture has helped make it fashionable to fetishize Asian men, which frankly isn't much of an improvement. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest Asian men have it harder than Asian women on, in this country on average. But we certainly do face our own particular struggles with how we're seen. Countless jokes in movies and TV about how nerdy and un unattractive we are contemptuous speculation about the size of our dicks. And if I had a nickel for every time I heard the exact phrase, sorry, I'm just not into Asian guys, I'd have 95 cents because I heard it 19 times, I count. <laughs> and when you're the only Asian guy in the room and oftentimes the entire building, suddenly every single thing you do and are represents the whole damn people. Suddenly my shortcomings become the shortcomings of all Asian guys. And when our masculinity is constantly under scrutiny, the idea of maybe being queer, that made me incredibly anxious. Any intrusive thoughts I had about what it'd feel like to snuggle with Kong Yu was a threat to my unvolunteered role as the only potential evidence that Asian men are indeed capable of masculinity. Obviously, there's a whole lot of internalized homophobia and toxic masculinity, to holy shit, and toxic masculinity to unpack there. But the whole point is, I was fighting myself so hard and you know what the irony is? I'm not even that bisexual. <laughs> I still have a pretty strong preference for women and femmes. Well, what I'm saying is my sexual orientation to this day, honestly, isn't that big a part of who I am. My bisexuality is absolutely undeniable, but so is the fact that I lived in Lubbock, Texas for a few months as an infant, and I don't really have any strong feelings about that. <laughs> but again, I was fighting myself so hard and one side effect of this brutal, constant struggle against this cute little slice of gayness in my sexuality pie was that from fighting myself, from trying to block myself from weakness and vulnerability and curiosity about what it would feel like to have a dick in my butt, I kept so much tension in my back, my spine was literally crushing itself in the midst of my battle to be the strong, masculine, exclusively heterosexual Asian man the world around me was stubbornly maintaining didn't exist. And as a result of all this tension, my roundhouse kick could barely reach hip height. Remember how this started? ADHD, man. Cut back to me watching Kamen Rider Zero One, swooning over Yaiba and Fua, those grumpy secret agents with the perfect eyebrows. Sitting on the bed, alone in the dark, I witnessed the intense yet rakishly floppy-haired Fua growl as he used his rage-driven brute force to wrench open the locked transformation device he wasn't authorized to use. And I just whispered to myself, 
out loud under my breath, I am not heterosexual. Then my back just loosens. I sit up straighter, but my lumbar spine relaxes. I get out of bed, and I feel taller. Am I, am I gay? I look at Yaiba, the equally intense lady in a pantsuit with 90s arrow bangs that were both adorable and very businessy. Nope, definitely not 100% gay. But that fool guy, oof, definitely not 100% straight either. As I prepare to train karate later that evening, I roll that same sentence over in my head. I am not heterosexual. And a variation, I am bisexual. And my back keeps getting straighter, my very stride longer and smoother, and I realize I'm smiling. What the fuck am I gonna do with this information? I have no idea, I just know it feels good to know. And that night, my roundhouse kicks were still terrible, but just a little bit less terrible. A few centimeters higher, the tiniest bit faster, but that tiny bit meant the world. Since elementary school, I, I assumed this was never going to be a kick I could execute to even a white belt standard. In all my years and st styles of training, I never saw even the tiniest modicum of improvement. And that contributed to a paradigm I clung to that said any given weakness of mine was permanent. My roundhouse kick would never improve. My cardio would always be a weakness. Outside the dojo, my anger problems would remain a curse forever. I would never be able to hold a job for more than a year. My borderline personality disorder would always ruin my life and the lives of everyone I love by my own actions from which I could never shirk responsibility, but also could never fully understand myself. I would never be able to stop weaving every single one of my negative attributes into an immense, indestructible narrative web of shame, and I would never stop overwhelming people I barely know with all the shitty little intricacies of my inner life. But that day, the day I let myself lose the fight against my own nature, the day I grew out of my insecurities in just the smallest way, my roundhouse kick got a little bit better. And since then, every single day, I stretch, I squat, I practice this kick over and over and over again. And my progress is painfully slow. But, like my bisexuality and the significance of my time living in Lubbock, Texas, it's small, but undeniable. And although while throwing a roundhouse, I still resemble a profoundly broken deer reacting to a car backfiring, I can now manage to get the top of my foot to lightly graze the cheek of a training partner who's almost as tall as me. And if that growth is possible, what could possibly stop me from figuring all my other shit out? This story was produced by Casey Truba, curated by Lizzie Dzinski, and directed by Lisa Duncan, with music and sound design from Mike Benedict and Justin Cavazos. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spence. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is, is the Second, Second Story Podcast.